Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. Thought leaders and positions of responsibility, universities or foundations or wherever they happen to be, need to take responsibility to really know the research and, and speak knowledgeably from the research. I mean, there's more to knowledge than, you know, what appears in journals, for sure. But if you ignore what's, you know, some of the best knowledge we have based on research, if you distort it, if you misrepresent it, I don't really sound mean, but that's on you, right? Because you can't, you can't put it on teachers to check out your claims. You just heard Dr. Claude Goldenberg. Namalini and Olivier Professor of Education Emeritus in the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. Today, Dr. Goldenberg joins Dr. Liz Brooke to discuss how to find common ground in the literacy conversation on All for Literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Thank you for joining us for part two of our conversation with Dr. Claude Goldenberg, focusing on successful school change creating settings to improve teaching and learning. Let's dive in. I always like to get started with one of my favorite things to learn about people, which is what inspired your choice to become an educator? Well, I'll tell you, I'm actually surprised that I ended up in education. It was never exactly my intent. I did some tutoring and things like that in high school. But I went to college thinking, you know, I'd probably go to law school or something. I've always been interested in what we now call social justice issues that go by different names over the years. But basically the idea that some kids, some people don't have equitable opportunities. And I've always been interested in working on that one way or another. And going through law school seemed like a logical way. And and then in college, for one reason or another, I got sort of less interested in law school and more interested in education. I think what kicked it off was that my roommate told me that there was like a teacher preparation program that you'd get without messing up your major, like with bulletin boards 101 and things like that. And you could get a credential by taking a couple of courses and doing some student teaching, six weeks, no more. And that would be something to fall back on to take a year off or two before going to law school. I said, okay, that sounds like a good day. I'd taken a year off before going to college, and I thought that was a great experience. And I said, well, I, I could do that again. And so I really did it just kind of, it's almost sort of a, on, as a lark. Yeah. And then I just got a little bit into the popular education literature of the day that John Holt and Herb Kozel, and I just got more and more interested in education. And I saw that really as is something that was kind of interesting, different, that I could work on some of my social justice concerns. And my parents lived in San Antonio at the time, and I'm originally from Argentina. So Spanish is actually my first language. So I thought, well, okay, I can teach and then I know Spanish. So that's kind of like a little extra something yeah. I can bring to the proceedings. So I got a credential, and I went to teach in San Antonio for two years. I, I was actually planning to teach, but I was just 
terribly underprepared. I mean, we can talk more about that if you want, but it was a very difficult two years. And I decided to not bail from education, but I just need to go back to school and get some more education myself. So that's when I came to UCLA and worked on a PhD in early childhood and education studies. So that's how I kind of got into it. Okay. So you taught, you said junior high school in San Antonio? Yeah. That's what we used to call middle school, as you might know, back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. I taught several sections of eighth grade remedial reading, kids whose reading was just so poor. There was a federally funded program at the school, at the district, for kids who were, say, two years below grade level. They couldn't be any more than two years below grade level. And there were just tons of kids way below two years below grade level. So the principal took away their elective and gave them to me instead to do, he said, just do what you can. I mean, those are my marching orders. Just do what you can. Unfortunately, those kids often do get their electives taken away because they do need more intensive instruction, but it would be helpful if we could figure out how to do that during their reading instruction and not have to take away their electives. So exactly, exactly. So then you moved to a PhD. So what prompted you to move from being in the classroom to research? Well, I went to PhD school not to do research. I really had no intention of being, you know, an academic or a professor. I wanted to learn more about child development and education and how schools and the education system could make contributions to the inequities and the differential opportunities that kids face. And I was actually thinking of getting my PhD, like I said, in early childhood education, early childhood developmental studies. And go back to San Antonio, they had a very well-known and apparently very good early childhood education program, the Edgewood School District, Mm. which is like one of the poorest school districts in all of Texas. And it's kind of famous in the legal archives because there was it was the scene of Edgewood and San Antonio got into a, shall we say, a, a court case about inequitable funding. And the someone from Edgewood School District, the Edgewood School District sued Texas or sued the San Antonio School District because there was this inequitable funding. So it's part of the legal lore having to do with equity around funding. So Edgewood had my personal history has a special place, yeah. but also in the legal history of trying to fight discrimination and inequity. And so I was teaching in Edgewood and I wanted to get into early childhood to find out what was going on early in these kids' lives, way before they were 13, 14, 15, and sitting in my classroom five years behind in their reading. And I was planning to go back to Edgewood and teach or administer, whatever, you know, with a PhD, freshly minted PhD. I'd know all sorts of things that would help me sort of, if not change the world, at least change early childhood education in the district. And then I just ended up staying in Los Angeles. And after my PhD, I taught first grade for three and a half years because I really wanted to get back in the classroom and see what worked, what didn't work, what I could do, I could figure out. So I taught first grade for three and a half years in the same district where I did my dissertation. Okay. And that's where I started in the first grade classroom. And like you said, it's such an inspiring time to be a teacher when they're first learning to read. But like you, I also didn't feel prepared. I had not been taught 
about the science of reading until I went back and became a speech language pathologist, actually. That's where I learned we got dual certified. So, and then I believe, did you write a book about your time in the Los Angeles area? It was, I believe in 1997, you produced Settings for Change. Yeah. Which was a video that described a five-year school improvement project that raised literacy achievement in the majority of bilingual elementary school in the Los Angeles area. And I think that led to a book that you wrote called (laughs) Successful School Change. So can you tell me a little bit about this project and what was it that made it such a compelling example of what was possible once you got into the earlier grades? Right. Well, what happened was it was a little bit longer story. I'm going to try to keep it short, which is a challenge for me. But I taught first grade for three and a half years, almost three or four years. And again, I just didn't feel, I mean, I was not prepared when I started teaching junior high. And I was really not that well prepared when I started teaching first grade, even with a legitimate PhD from a legitimate graduate school of education. I really did not know the research and the best knowledge available, even with a PhD. And I I learned a lot of things. I mean, that was the best postdoc I possibly could have done. I mean, far better than going to someone's lab and right. burnishing Teaching my in resume. the actual classroom, right? Yes. Teaching. Yeah. Doing the stuff in the trenches, as we say. I learned from my students and from my colleagues things I never learned in school, college, graduate school, anywhere. I had a lot of help. I had a lot of support, but I had some colleagues who took a very different, I mean, I came out of graduate school with a very, we'd call, now we call balanced literacy. Back then it was whole language. Right. Yeah. That was the whole language heyday in the 80s in California and throughout the country and parts of the world. And I was totally smitten by that. The idea that reading is not barking at print, one of the cliches that were tossed around, that reading is about meaning, reading is about communication, reading is about constructing meaning and understanding, and that's what should drive it, first, last, and always. And the idea that reading should begin by memorizing letters and their sounds and how they combine just seems so darn boring. Right. I mean, why the would drill anyone... and kill, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. was, I sort of bought into that whole thing mm-hmm. until I realized that the kids I was teaching weren't really making such great progress. And I actually did, I had very good colleagues, whether they agreed with me or not. And we did a couple little studies with kindergarten kids. And long story short, I found that the kids who were in classrooms with teachers who were actually teaching them to read, and this is either Spanish or English, because I was in a bilingual program, and Mm -hmm. I did these studies actually in Spanish, because Spanish literacy and bilingual education, bilingual programs, what I was really very interested in. There was not a lot of research on teaching Spanish literacy per se in the particular context where I was teaching. So that's what I was really bearing down on. And I realized, much to my at first dismay and then shock and then realization that I'd gotten it all wrong, that the <laughs> teachers actually taught the kids how to read by teaching the letters and the sounds and how they combine to form words and the whole bottom-up thing. Right. I mean, these kids were actually like reading. <laughs> and <laughs> I knew they that. were reading yeah. because these kindergarten teachers would send them to my first grade classroom. Mm. And I saw the difference between, you talk about experiential learning, 
I saw the difference right. between treatment and control right there. That's in the right. Movie. In a study that I designed, right? I mean, yes. it couldn't have been yeah. better scripted. And these kids were coming to me with really very solid decoding skills. Now, they did kind of read robotically. If you know anything mm -hmm. about teaching Spanish reading, it's very syllabically oriented and kids learn early phrases like mi, ma, ma, me, ama. And they'd come in reading mi, ma, ma, me. I mean, it was totally robotic. They really didn't have an idea they were reading something meaningful. So I had to work with them to say, right. read it like you're talking. I mean, there's something right. going the on here. The wasn't there. And the, exactly. Yes. Because there was, the teachers were so focused on getting the sound symbol and the letter sounds and how they combine to form syllables and then words. And they were extremely successful at that. But then when these kids came in, they could do that like champs, but... It was not, as you say, with the prosody, with the expression. So I went and I talked to them. I said, your kids really know how to decode like, like firecrackers, but they're reading very robotically. They don't realize they're reading something meaningful. And being like really good colleagues and really interested, the next year, that was taken care of. They made yeah. sure that when they're, that the kids were reading stuff that was meaningful to them. So they kind of combined the what we now call the two parts of Scarsborough's rope, right? <laughs> the word recognition and the language right, meaning and communication. Yeah. And the comprehension. That's right. So that was a total learning experience for me. And and then after about three or four years, teaching teaching first grade's hard. Yes. <laughs> Even when you learn things you didn't know. And I I don't know, I, I still didn't want to be a professor, but I was interested in continuing some research with the teachers who were colleagues of mine. And we started doing some work on something called instructional conversation to try to promote mm -hmm. more meaning, comprehension-oriented discussions around things that kids are reading. So I went to UCLA and with my colleague, former dissertation committee member, Ron Gallimore, we got some funding to continue doing some research. And one of those phases of research, I am actually going to answer your question, Liz. I know I've <laughs> been on what Madeline Hunter would call a, a bird walk. But eventually I got interested in school change. You know, there's only so much. I mean, teachers can do a lot of things, but there's a context and a culture, as we know, of the school. As right. Seymour Saracen told us generation or two ago, there's a mm -hmm. culture of the school that has an enormous influence on what people do, how they think, how they, the whole culture of the school is very important. And I became interested in that as a, as shall we say, a fulcrum, a leverage point to kind of improve achievement on a school-wide basis, rather than just working teacher by teacher, classroom by classroom, which is not unimportant for sure. But there's a structure there within the school that really has a lot of, shall we say, a lot of pull, a lot of weight right. in the terms of what teachers do. The, the leadership, yeah. exactly, the structures that yeah. are set up. So that's what led to my working with the woman who was my the principal at the school where I was teaching when I was still in the classroom before I escaped back to UCLA. <laughs> she was reassigned to a school down the street and. She was doing her dissertation and she became, we actually did some things at the school where I was teaching that actually helped improve achievement in a pretty substantial way. I published a couple of things from that. And when the principal was moved to another school, she said, Claude, there's just like we were five years ago before you, you started teaching here. And I want to do it at, this, at my new school what we did 
at the former school. And plus she was going to do a dissertation, so she didn't know what to do. I said, well, why don't we do this like school change project to kind of overhaul what's going on in the school, improve achievement school-wide, and make that your dissertation? And it was funny because she said, wait a minute, can you do that? Because <laughs> <laughs> other people were saying, well, just choose something you can do, get in, get out, do your dissertation, and then do important work. I never right. bought into that particular way of thinking. So anyway, we worked together on this project for like five years. That First came the movie because I was getting stuck writing the book. But so first came the video, Settings for Change. And then I managed to finally squeeze out the book that was a successful school change, creating settings to improve teaching and learning. And so that was the history behind that. And it was a lot of work and it was very, I don't know, it was very gratifying. There was really school-wide refocus on academic achievement and what are we trying to accomplish. We had a kind of a model that let Jesse, the principal, use to guide her dissertation. And yeah, so so that was that. But that was probably one of the most rewarding things I've done. Yeah. And I love that the focus that you talked about, it's not only about what teachers are doing in the classroom, but at the school level or mm. the district level, right? That leadership, that school change. There was so much conversation around that back in the Reading First days and when RTI and MTSS started to come onto the scene more comprehensively across the board, not just for behavior. I think that's such a piece that is is often missed, right? We yes. all focus on teacher training, which we know I was in a similar boat to your, I believed in balanced literacy and whole language because <laughs> I didn't know any right. differently. And so I think we need to do a better job training teachers, but also leaders and the administrators and not just in what, you know, is being called the science of reading now, but the understanding of school change and what does support look like for your teachers. So can you talk just a little bit more about some of those systems that you found so successful in that school, in that project? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And it's such an important point. So we actually developed, I don't know, a model of a theory of change. I mean, it sounds so grandiose, but we sort of identified some things that we thought just kind of conceptually would help guide the process. And none of these should surprise you or anyone else. I mean, there's nothing particularly hidden here. Some people find it kind of banal, to tell you the truth. I mean, the first thing you want to do, if you want to create a sort of a school-wide focus on kind of improving something. I mean, I think this applies whether you're talking about reading or math, or it could be behavioral, or it could be socio-emotional. You want to have clear a set of goals that, that you're kind of aiming. What is it we want to accomplish? And they've got to be in terms of student outcomes. I mean, because the goal really, <laughs> our goals in education have got to be student-centered. Otherwise, we're just kind of whistling Dixie. Right. It's got to be about the students. What, what do you want students to know, be able to do? And this applies to affective outcomes as well as cognitive, as well as behavioral. What do you want students to be able to do, know, understand, appreciate, value, 
however you operationalize it, as a result of the educational experience you're providing them. I mean, that's got to be sort of the starting point. It's kind of like right. the old saying, begin with the end in mind. Yes. Right. right? The seven yes. habits. What or does habits success of look like? Successful right? people. Right. I mean, yes. what should students be able to do sort of at the end of some period of time, whether it's throughout mm-hmm. elementary school or next month? So we started this like in the around 1990. And this is before Common Core and state standards. There was a time that these things didn't exist, that there weren't these state standards. There wasn't Common Core. There wasn't... Right. I mean, those things are, well, I mean, it seems like they've been with us forever, but if you've been around a little longer than forever, you know that they've <laughs> yeah. not been here forever. So, yes. there, and there were no sort of agreed upon goals or grade level standards or anything. So the first thing we did was we formed kind of like an academic achievement committee or something to kind of formulate that. So what do we want kids to know and be able to do? Specifically around literacy and math. I mean, those two kind of basic subjects, but literacy is more my area. So that's kind of what I focused on more. You could do it with anything, but goals that are kind of set and shared that people sort of agree, okay, this is what we're going for on a grade by grade basis. And then indicators, what indicators are we going to use to see whether we're actually accomplishing that? Now, indicators can be standardized tests, but they certainly shouldn't be limited to standardized tests. There's a concept of formative assessment and summative assessment. So you want to use those Mm -hmm. kind of concepts to guide what you're doing, but you need some kind of behavioral, observable things, you know, that you're looking for in some systematic way to see if whether you're approaching those goals, right? So you have goals, you have indicators, you need assistance from others. Sometimes we call it professional development. Sometimes we call it principal visits. Sometimes we call it grade level meetings where people share ideas, but you need assistance from others, from capable others. There's talent and capabilities in all school faculties. I've never been in a school where there isn't talent and capability, but it's rarely shared. It's poorly Mm -hmm. shared. There are not the structures in place to systematically help people help others in a systematic and regular way. Absolutely. I always tell the story that I taught first grade next to two women, one across the hall and one next door, who had been teaching for 25 years. Mm. And I never once saw them teach. And I just think about, like you're saying, this expertise that is in our schools we need to do a better job. People often bring in outside experts, right? but we need to leverage the expertise that we have in our buildings and learn. And to your point, create a system or an opportunity where that can happen more regularly. You are so right. This concept that was popular a few years ago, I think maybe people have forgotten it, borrowed from the Japanese education system on lesson study, mm. where systematically teachers in Japanese schools, they spend less face time with kids and more time face time with each other. Oh, wow. Doing lessons, identifying instructional challenges, watching each other teach. I mean, that's just, as I understand it, I mean, I've never been in a Japanese school. I just know what I read. That's a systematic part. That's a regular part of their school day. And that's like totally missing. Now, we now have the concept of PLCs, professional learning communities, partly spurred by lesson study and so forth. So there are some glimmers of that sort of thing, but 
it's rarely, if ever, tied into a more holistic structure that begins with a set of shared goals, is tied into some concrete indicators that tell you to what extent those goals are being accomplished. And so the right. assistance is in the service of those goals and the indicators. And then the fourth element is leadership. Now, we used to talk about leadership that supports and pressures. People don't like the word pressure, so I'm not going to use the word pressure. I'm going to say accountability. Right. Leadership that supports and provides accountability. So when people agree to a set of goals and they've agreed to some indicators that will help you accomplish them and you're getting the assistance that you need to do that, well, you have to provide that support so that that happens. But part of that support is providing accountability. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you know, we've agreed to this. And just because it's hard <laughs> and it's going right. to be hard, guaranteed, few guarantees in life, but one is that it's going to be hard. We can't just bail because remember, the center of this, the end in mind is the kids and what we're doing for the kids. We've agreed to this. We're going to do it. There's assistance. And so there's an accountability and we have to hold each other accountable. I mean, that's just got to be part of it. But again, it's part of a cultural thing in the school, and it depends on leadership, not just from a principal or system principal, but from the teachers themselves, whether they're grade right. level chairs or whatever. And then the final element was settings. That's where the title comes. This is a, a concept I borrowed from Seymour Saracen from one of his phenomenally insightful books, that things happen or don't happen in settings. They don't happen just in the air. They've got to be concrete reliable, dependable settings where people come together to accomplish specific goals. Change is not in the air. Change happens in concrete settings, or it doesn't. Yeah. So those are the really five elements that kind point. of guided our efforts. And yeah. we brought in a third-party evaluator to kind of do some observations and sort of disinterested. We paid him regardless of what he found. And when he found some pretty good evidence in a kind of quasi-experimental study that we did that in schools where we were following this model, there was a lot more engagement by the teachers. They were in meetings talking about substantive issues rather than yard duty. You have teachers meeting together and lots of topics come up. And very often, what are the instructional challenges that we're having and how do we meet them is often not high on the list of what right. happens in teacher meetings. Unless it's structured in such a way, that's what the expectation is. And people are given time and opportunity to really right. focus on those things. And it's taken to a high level of priority. Anyway, I yeah. could go on, but I yeah. think you get the picture. No, and I think the idea getting teachers buy-in either mm because they know they're going to have the support to be successful or they're being set up for success. So that accountability piece becomes part, to your point, part of the system. And it's not seen as punitive, mm -hmm. but supportive accountability towards these goals that everybody agreed upon. So I, th I exactly. think that is, is so important. And I always... When I worked down at FCR, I went around to schools during the Reading First days that were demonstrating real success and talked to some of these principals. And one principal told me, what gets inspected gets respected. And that <laughs> idea that what's important to leadership does set a tone for what's important, to your point, that culture of the school, the settings, 
But again, she provided that support to her teachers around reading and the importance of reading. So I just, I think it's such an important piece that I'm excited now how we're focusing on teacher professional learning. And I just hope we continue to focus also on leadership or administration training, because to your point, all of those aspects need to be in place as well as the teacher knowledge. So absolutely. It, there is a delicate balance that, that we tried to capture in the concept of support and pressure, which I now prefer support and accountability. There's a delicate balance because people respond to leadership in different ways, and there are different factors that influence how they respond. And people's motivations, people's inferences about leadership's motivation to do things. I've found to be a very important factor. And I've run into this where the principal comes into a school and really wants to overhaul things, to improve things, improve achievement, the way things are done. Very often, teachers in particular are very skeptical of these because so many things have come and gone. Right. One, of, one of the sayings one I used to hear all the time. <laughs> one more initiative, yeah. And keep your head down because this too shall pass. Right. So if people have the idea, for whatever reason, legitimate or not, that this is being done because the principal wants to look good for the superintendent or they're doing a dissertation or mm -hmm. whatever, if there's a second mode, a, a hidden agenda, people will respond very differently. And you have to anticipate that. And you have to anticipate and expect that there's going to be some skepticism. Not everyone. In fact, many people are not going to follow you like the Pied Piper, just because you say you want to improve achievement at school. A lot of times the reaction is, oh, really? I've right. been teaching for 25 years. What have you been doing? So you need to be mindful of that. Respect it because it, it's based on lived experience. I mean, a lot of things have come and gone. The innovation du jour, whether yes. it's writing to read or science of reading or balanced literacy, Right. Everyone's got a great idea. Mm -hmm. And the cynicism is sky high among teachers and not without reason. So you need to be aware of that, be prepared for it, be willing to work through it. And you have to demonstrate that we're all in this together and we hang together or we hang apart because right. the success of our school and our kids depends on what we do. And people are not going to believe you right away because they're cynical, but you have to work through it. And just be mindful of it. Right. And getting, that's why I was saying that buy-in is so important. Yep. And teachers understanding the why of the yep. initiative, right? That it's not just one more thing on my plate, but why are we doing this? And how will I be supported or set up for success? So I think that's so important. And then the infrastructures before they jump into implementing it, those are some of the critical pieces. Yes. You're right. That. It's not going to be easy. No, none of us really love change. And especially <laughs> to your point, if you've been teaching one way for 25 years, again, in the balanced literacy world, and then now somebody's telling you what you've been doing is not only wrong, but potentially harmful, we have to be really careful about that. And it's it's not about blaming. It's about what is our end goal with our students and what do we know from science. I just want to thank you so much, Claude, for taking the time 
to talk with us today. I've really learned a lot and you reinforced some of my understandings and I really appreciate the detail and the explanation you took with your answers. Well, thank you, Liz. It was a real pleasure. And thank you for our listeners for joining Claude and I today, starting and continuing conversations like these. It's really how we're going to bring together the best practices and ideas to create a more accessible, equitable, and effective educational environment for our students. And this can only happen because of the work that educators everywhere are doing. And we're so glad that you are a part of it. So help us welcome more people to the Literacy Conversation by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And I'd love to hear more about what you're experiencing in literacy education. So join the conversation on Twitter and let me know what you think by following me at Liz C. Brooke. Thanks so much, everyone. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the Literacy Conversation. 